Please take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Proverbs. And our first thought from there will come from chapter 8, if you want to go specifically to a place, before we begin to think about a particular major topic or theme, emphasis that runs through the whole book. I'd like to take just a moment each Sunday to reinforce for us why it is so worth it for us to take to heart 3,000-year-old Proverbs because they apply so beautifully to our lives today. So Proverbs 8, 34 to 36, is a word picture I really appreciate, like, uh, resonates with me. Blessed is the one who listens to me. And this is wisdom talking. So in essence, we can say this is God talking. This is his word that we are to listen to. In two ways. Watching daily at my gates. So the gates were where the town people, the citizens would go for counsel, where the elders would sit, where they would get advice, where they would get judgments made with disputes, all of those things that took place at the gates. So the idea is going daily to the gates of God in order to receive counsel and guidance. And then secondly, more personally, now it comes right down to the very house of God, waiting beside my doors. And the motivation for all of this is whoever finds me at the gates, at my doors, in my word, finds life for both salvation but also our day-to-day sanctification and obtains favor, blessing. James will use the word grace later today from the Lord. But he who fails to find me because he did not value me, he did not watch at the gates, he did not wait at the doors, he just trucked on in his life, doing his own thing, thinking, making his own judgments, injures himself. All who hate me Love death. So last week, we looked at, among our topics that we've been developing, the need for wisdom in friends and in friendships, the necessity of good friends, the, the particular importance, preeminence of our friendship with God, and then character traits of wise friends and friendships where we love steadfastly and are faithful, we cover offenses, we give counsel and guidance, we correct, encourage, and push each other toward Christ and his righteousness, pursuing it together. Today, we'll look at God's words in Proverbs about pride and humility, the harm of pride, and the rich rewards of humility. Pride and humility lie at the very heart of the book of Proverbs and the press for our need to get wisdom, and to flee or crucify folly in our lives. Now, pride is hard to define. It's very multifaceted. I'll try to give you some pictures of it in a bit. But to me, Romans 12.3, next slide if we could, is a capturing, maybe the best way, simplest summary of the problem of pride is the warning not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought but to think instead with sober judgment. We tend to get that 
out of balance and always are pushing ourselves far more highly in our minds and estimation than what the hard truths of the Bible tell us. Let's spend a little bit of time defining humility. I'm going to lean on a few other people here to help us unpack this. Tim Keller, in a little book on self-forgetfulness, which would be one way of wording humility, says, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking less. Thinking of yourself less, sorry. My bad. Uh, That's a problem of pride. Um, But I would say that it does also often mean thinking less of ourselves wherever we do tend to think too highly. It's the shrinking of ourselves that most of us need which tends to get way too big and shrinking it down to the proper God-intended size and place that it has. C.S. Lewis, if you meet a really humble man, he will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Gavin Ortland, humility is the joy of thinking about yourself less and about Jesus more. And then Gavin Ortland also, I think, unpacked a thought that's helpful for those of us who may go to the other side of pride. Humility is not self-hatred, self-neglect, or self-punishment. The Bible never says hate yourself, instead love your neighbor. It says love your neighbor as yourself. Self-hatred is actually sinful, no less than hatred of others. Many in our society struggle with a sense of shame, inferiority, and a lack of self-worth. We must sharply distinguish between such feelings from the goal of humility. Whatever else humility will require of you, it will never rob you of your dignity as an image bearer of God. Humble people do not regard their own existence as an evil in which they move. They can walk about freely in the world with a bounce in their step. So the humility God wants us to have doesn't think too highly of ourselves, doesn't think too lowly of ourselves. Here's C.S. Lewis again, perhaps helping us. Now this is from Screwtape Letters. So the enemy, we have to think backwards. This is actually the way the demon is referring to God. So we'll just say God where we see that. God wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more, and I would add, or less, otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. God wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor, so that's another way of thinking of sober judgment from Romans 12, 3, that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, elephant, or waterfall. One more thought about humility that perhaps is helpful for some. Humility sees God as massive and is trembling at such greatness. Humility sees the necessity of grace that is so undeserved and unwarranted. And it sees the necessity of mercy 
because it still sees itself with such sin. On the other hand, pride can be said, and here's a number of very short little ways it's been expressed, the sin of all sins, the complete anti-God state of mind, our greatest enemy, our greatest problem, the primal evil in the universe. And I appreciated William Barclay's unpacking or putting it this way. Pride is the ground in which all other sins grow and the parent from which all other sins come. The irony of pride is that the more pride we have, the harder it is to see it. That's why Christians you see as really arrogant don't see it that way. Fabian Harford, when it comes to diagnosing our hearts, those of us who have the disease of pride have a challenging time identifying our sickness. Pride infects our eyesight, we might think of it like cataracts, causing us to view ourselves through a lens that colors and distorts what is really reality. Pride will even paint our ugliness in sin as beautiful and commendable. This is part of what makes pride so hard to identify and so hard to repent of. Now add to that, for our setting, our context, that we live in a society that fosters and promotes it and most of the time has no value and no reward for humility. Christians can brag with the best of them, whether it's on social media or in person, particularly when it's about their kids. Churches can brag about the spiritual fruit as if they have produced it rather than God. And parachurch organizations can boast of all the results and the numbers as a way to convince people that God is working through them mightily. It's the very air that Americans breathe. So being humble here with no pride of life, which is one of the ways John refers to pride in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Being humble is no small order, but it's a critical component, as critical as there is in the Christian life. So we're in Proverbs, but I'm once again... I've done this before, but every once in a while, some other scripture, I think, sets up what we're going to look at in Proverbs really well. And James 4, 6 to 10, in my mind, does that really well. So there's bookends. In, in verse 6, it finishes with this profound statement, God opposes the proud. Or we could say God opposes pride, but gives incredible grace to the humble or gives grace in humility. And then it closes with the command, therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In between those two bookends is perhaps the best definition of humility. Submitting oneself entirely to God, resisting the devil that feeds pride, our pride, just as he did Adam and Eve. Nearness to God cleansing of our hands, purifying of our hearts, mourning of our sin, all with this single-mindedness, 
rather than a double-mindedness or a double standard. So, as we'll see in Proverbs today, at the core of this, where we're going with this is that it's with the humble where wisdom is found. And yet, what is a prayer request most of us are afraid to pray? Lord, humble me. Because we're not convinced. We're not convinced of James 4, 6. We don't believe it. We think there's greater reward. Father, today as we open the book of Proverbs again, we pray what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, that you will sanctify us by your truth, and we acknowledge that your word is truth. So please take these Proverbs and make them living and active inside of us long after this morning and in our minds and deep into our hearts, working and working and working to transform us and conform us to your Son. May these words, as sharp and piercing as they may be, penetrate deep into us, discern our deepest heart motives, desires, thoughts, attitudes, and affections, and do the surgery that we all so desperately need from you. We ask in your name and for the glory in the fruit that results. Amen. So we're going to start thinking about pride. Uh, most of the Proverbs that deal with this topic deal with both of them in the same proverb. And so some of those will break out and think, try to think individually about each of them. But just start with God's despising of and opposing of pride. To try to make our thinking about pride more practical and specific and try to help us think through how pervasive it is or how it is the sin of all sins, I'm going to do something that's not normally good practice in preaching. I'm going to give you a list, an extensive list, uh, that I encourage you right now not to try to scribble down. I'll put it in the email. Um, but to simply think through and ponder how we may be humble in some of these ways, and yet still prideful in some of these ways. Our pride is often, and I will acknowledge, not always, certainly, but perhaps more than we often realize, our pride is behind. One, our belief that we are humble people. Two, there's a lot, so I won't keep numbering them. Not fearing the Lord rightly. Not seeing our pride. Sometimes even when God exposes it blatantly. Pride is often behind why we, the way we justify and validate our sin in our minds. Pride is often behind our not confessing it as sin and not truly repenting of it. Pride is behind almost anything with the word self connected to it. Self-centeredness, self-concern, self-pity, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-deception, self-serving, self-obsession, and self-consciousness where we are constantly thinking about ourselves. Pride is often behind our comparing ourselves to others whom we either see as better or as worse. Pride is often behind our subtle sense of superiority over other people. 
on the basis of just about anything. Family, abilities God has given us, looks, body, wealth, jobs, home, education and degrees, possessions, you name it. And aspects even of the Christian life, our knowledge of doctrine, our praying, our kindness, our service, our giving. Our pride is behind often our boasting and bragging about ourselves or very often our children or others that we love and care about. Pride is behind our critical thoughts and judgments of others and disrespect that we give people. It's behind our lack of interest in other people. It's behind our not being correctable, teachable, or receiving criticism well, often in areas we think we know better than the person criticizing or correcting us. Pride is often behind our desire to be given credit and recognition for what we've done. It's behind our insatiable desire for praise and applause of others, for others to like us and be impressed by us. It's behind our tendency to mislead and deceive others so that we look better. It's behind our desire for attention from someone or our lack of attention that we wish people would give us. It's often behind our talking about ourselves. Think Toby Keith's song, Let's Talk About Me. Or telling stories about ourselves. That most of the conversations we are in, we inject ourselves into it. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I or even turn the whole conversation toward ourselves. It's behind our disinterest in others and our insensitivity and our lack of compassion and empathy for what others are going through. It's behind our feeling offended when somebody says something. It's behind our need to defend ourselves, behind our stubbornness, behind our sense of entitlement and sensing that we deserve things, either from God or others. It's behind our lack of thankfulness and gratitude, and it's in our complaining and grumbling. It's behind our not being open to others' input and teaching. It's in our difficulty in admitting that we're wrong, even when we clearly are, but especially when we think we can get away with it. It's behind our difficulty in apologizing and saying the simple words, I am sorry, even when we clearly need to. It's behind our love of sharing our thoughts and opinions with others. It's behind our sarcasm. In fact, the more pride we have, the more biting our sarcasm often is. It's behind our slander, our making fun of people, our criticizing of people. It's behind our being slow to listen and quick to speak, our interrupting of other people, our talking over them. It's behind our impatience and our anger. Are you getting the idea? It's behind our argumentativeness, our quarrelsomeness, our willingness to enter into conflict and strife, our contending with people, our divisiveness, our unsubmissiveness, our rebelling against authority for non-biblical reasons, our aloofness, our keeping apart from people, our independence, autonomy, insecurity, seeking of glory, believing the compliments people give us freely without ever questioning them, and doubting and discrediting all the negative things people say, constantly questioning them. It's behind our unwillingness to forgive others, to hold grudges, to harbor bitterness. It's behind our obsessing over analyzing ourselves. It's behind our friendship and relationship struggles. 
Hence, William Barclay's words are pretty profound. Pride is the ground in which all other sins grow and the parent from which all other sins come. There may not be an area of the Christian life where pride is not a factor at all. So God cares deeply about it, and he addresses it often in the book of Proverbs as well as throughout his word. Let's now look briefly at some of those. Perhaps the most comprehensive, blunt, in-your-face Proverbs about pride are Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked. In other words, the way in which the wicked light their way through the darkness of this world is by haughty and proud hearts and eyes. Um, so God is speaking both of the internal, the proud heart, and the external, the proud or haughty eyes with which they look. Proverbs 16.5, quite similarly, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Earlier in Proverbs, in chapter 6, also highlights that there are six things God hates, seven that are abomination, and first on the list, if they are in any sense of importance to God, haughty eyes. And then near the very end of Proverbs, in chapter 30, verses 12 and 13, more about the eyes, there are those human beings who are clean in their own eyes. They think they're fine, but are not washed of their filth because their pride keeps them from seeing how filthy they are. These, there are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. What pictures. Perhaps the best known proverb on pride is Proverbs 16, 18, which declares pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Next slide, if we could. And then a number of Proverbs, very similar in that vein with slightly different wording. 18.12 talks about destruction. 11.2 talks about disgrace as a consequence. 15.25 about God tearing down the house or the life of the proud. And 29.23 that pride will ultimately bring a man low, even while he thinks it is lifting him up. Proverbs 21.24 perhaps captures the operating system best of proud people. Scoffer is the name of the arrogant. These are people, the arrogant, the haughty, the proud. Scoff at God. There is no fear of God. There is no value in him. And isn't that palpably evident in our nation? God help us that it doesn't rub off on us. Now, let me add that in terms of the actual word pride or proud, they're really, those last two slides, there really aren't a tremendous number. But it's also all over in the book of Proverbs. Here's just a few examples where it's not explicitly stated, but it's implied that pride is definitely a part of this. So, Proverbs 3, 5. Our pride within our hearts lead us to lean on our own understanding. Verse 7 to be wise in our own eyes. 14.12, to do whatever seems right to us. 28.16, to trust in our own minds. 18.2, to 
a fool or a fool's pride takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. 29.11, a fool or a fool's pride gives full vent to his spirit. 19.3, when a man's folly or pride brings his way to ruin, his proud heart rages against the Lord. Wow. What leads humans to behave like this is pride. Now, it's equally true as we transition here to humility that the number of verses that actually use the word humble is not a huge number in Proverbs, but such as Proverbs 25, there are all kinds of other ways in which humility is expressed. I would put forth to you just about every time that the fear of the Lord is referred to in Proverbs, we can think humility is attached to that. And then one other way is the way that we treat enemies with grace rather than with vengeance or vindictiveness or simply breaking away from them. So think pride and humility far beyond this. Whenever you're working through the book of Proverbs, recognize and note all the other ways that pride may be spoken of without using the actual word. Now we'll transition and swing in the second half here to the fact that as much as God hates pride and opposes it, even more he loves and gives Abundant, beautiful, precious grace to those who are humble. So major, major principle is that wisdom cannot, cannot happen in conjunction with pride. Pride just suffocates out any wisdom. So once again, 11.2 tells us that it's only with the humble that there is truly wisdom. And then... 813, that the fear of the Lord or the spirit of humility under the Lord is the hating of evil and the instruction in wisdom. Fear of the Lord produces humility, which is the only way that wisdom enters our heart, even when we're praying for it. Pride repels God's wisdom, intentionally, knowingly, or not, but a humility loves it, seeks it, recognizes the need for it, welcomes it, and thrives on God's wisdom. Some of the blessings, and these are often in Proverbs that also, first of all, spoke about pride. Almost all the Proverbs do the proud uh, characteristic first when it does both of them, and then does the humility characteristic. So, on a number of these, these are the last lines of these Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 4. To the humble, God gives favor. Same thing we saw uh, at the beginning of the message. Proverbs 15, 33. Humility comes before honor. Almost verbatim three chapters later in 18, 12. Proverbs 29, 23. Who, he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Notice, over and over and over and over. Honor, 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 honor. Another wording we'll get later is the exalting of us by God. God so loves it. He gives his favor, his honor, his riches of relationship with him and his life. The enjoying of life the way God has designed it comes to the humble. And then two other brief references uh, in Proverbs that both compare that it's better for us to be lowly or humble and at least have the basic necessity, in this case of a servant or whatever it might be, but to have very little than to play the great man and lack bread. And Proverbs 16, 19, which is the verse right after 
Pride goes before destruction. We're told it's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor, the nobodies, than to divide the spoil or be among the riches with the proud. Now, many, many other Old Testament references. Uh, it's riddled with stories from Genesis 3 on of how pride has made misery of humans' existence and how God has over and over and over and over humbled them. And then you might think of verses like 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. And this is not about America, so please don't make it about America. This is about God's people who are called by my name. First step, first thing. There's a number of things he's calling them to do. But first is humble yourself. And then that humility should lead you to pray, seek his face, turn from the wicked ways. And then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And then Micah 6, 8, he's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Three things. May your life be about doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with your God. But for the remainder of the time, it's fitting for us to connect all that Proverbs says to us to Jesus and the gospel and how they speak to the grace of humility. So 1 Corinthians 1, Paul opens his first letter to the Corinthians with this reminder to them. Consider or think about your calling, the way that God has brought you to be saved. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But that wasn't what God was looking for. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak. He chose what's low. And the reason at the end of this whole paragraph is so that no human being will ever think it's about him and his goodness or his greatness that God saved him, that no human being will boast, will utter one arrogant word in the presence of God. Now, Jesus taught us, and others did as well. Uh, the slide will have both Psalm 149 and Matthew 18 on it, that we are only saved through humility. The only door into heaven is one that the humble walk through. It is never through pride. And it's not in spite of pride in the sense of God will overlook my pride and allow me in for other reasons. So Psalm 149, I love the wording. He adorns the humble with salvation. He beautifies the humble with his salvation. Matthew 18, unless you turn and become, and we could say there, humble, like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the number one reason why people don't come to the Lord when we proclaim the gospel that seems so clear to us. There's just too much pride there. But whoever humbles himself like this child or like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Again, the gospel through what Christ did and what he was shows us the importance uh, uh, to God of humility. So now we're going to turn our attention for the next couple of minutes to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to take this in third. So 
the center middle third, first of all, declares Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or did not refuse to have, keep having everything the way it was in heaven, but was willing to let go of that, emptied himself, one way of thinking, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then once he was in the human form, even lower yet, all the way down to the very lowest point, he humbled himself as God by becoming obedient to the point of death as a man, even death on the most humiliating of capital punishment instruments, the cross. So hallelujah for the humility of Christ. A humble Savior will save incredibly arrogant people by humbling them under the cross and the gospel. And this is the heart of the gospel. Read more about it in the bulletin, and if this is unfamiliar or unclear to you, please lean in on that. Please invite us into more conversation with you. It is, he is an incredible Savior. Two more things on either side of this central depiction of Christ that I want to note. First of all, in verses 9 through 11, how God gives grace by exalting. So he's fulfilling exactly what he said in James 4.10, that he highly exalts him because of that humble work and bestows on him a name that is above every name. So every knee will bow in heaven and earth and everywhere and every tongue confess how great and glorious he is as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, while we are not worthy of this level of exaltation and glory, the principle holds true. Heaven holds unimaginable rewards for the humble. That brings us to our third area here in Philippians 3, and now we're going to move back to what was first stated. So we're looking at the commands after looking at the gospel motivation, the resulting fulfillment of God's principles on his own son, and now comes back and I hope makes this command even more meaningful to us. There is a charge here for an incredible, incredible level of humility. Do nothing, nothing from selfish or proud ambition, looking out for yourself, or conceit, pride, arrogance. But in humility, count others more significant, more important, of greater worth than yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And to do this, you must have a mind that thinks like Christ Jesus. Gavin Ortland, if we would like to grow in humility, the place to start is here at the cross Christ's humiliation is the death of all ego and swagger. There is no room for pride before the crucified Savior. And his exaltation gives us a greater glory to live for than our own. Then along this same line of thought, Randy Newman, growing in humility is a lifelong venture as you increase 
in the knowledge of God's word, it should always be humbling us, and in appreciation for God's work through Christ, which is the gospel. So we come to God humbly to be saved, but God also makes it very clear that we must not ever rise up from that place at the cross. We must continue on for the Christian life is the way down, down, down into greater and greater humility. For it is no longer at all about us and it becomes less and less and less significant about us and more and more about him. Peter and James wrote almost verbatim about this charge. So James 4, 6 and 10, we've already looked at. Just want to have you visually see it again. But notice then in the middle how closely Peter's words resemble this. Doubtful that they were reading each other's mail. But God, through each of them, charges us. And in Peter, it says, clothe yourself. There's a great word picture. Every morning, put on, dress yourself in humility of Christ toward other people. And then same principle he gives as James did. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And then the charge where James said, humble yourselves before the Lord, Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God. And both of them then finish with the principle that ultimately in the end, when it matters most and where it matters most, God will exalt the humble. And then Jesus reiterated this principle twice in the book of Luke, both in Luke 14 and then in Luke 18, which is right after the comparison of the Pharisee who praised God that he wasn't as bad of a sinner as everybody else and did way more good things. And then the tax collector who got up and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's where Jesus taught this principle. You exalt yourself here on earth. You will be humbled at some point. But whoever humbles himself will, in God's timing and in God's way, where it matters most, be exalted. Closing thoughts. Just try to press it into us in practical ways. Kids, young people, teenagers, watch your pride. You will not only make your home a miserable place, you have the potential to wreck your whole life. Parents, you don't get off the hook. Watch your pride. It will hurt your family, and it will work against you in so many ways. Men, we are proud creatures. Watch your pride. It's likely the worst thing about you. And women, watch your pride. You may hide it better. You may not express it as blatantly as many of us men do. But it doesn't make it any less evil or any less damaging. Humble yourselves, First Street Bible Church, under God's mighty hand. Clothe yourself with humility. And within our body, we need humble elders. So fellow elders, let's watch constantly against our pride 
and hold each other accountable to be humble. We need humble deacons. We need humble teachers of God's word. We need humble leaders of small groups. We need humble disciple makers. We need everyone humble. Perhaps nothing has ruined or wrecked or split more churches than human pride in people professing to belong to God. Watch for evidences of it, whether it's through those 40 or so examples we looked at. But wherever you see it, recognize it's evil, confess it, ask God's forgiveness, recognize his hatred of it, and ask him to help you repent, to turn, and to realize that that's going to be over and over and over and over. And just a reminder from Proverbs 28, 13, that whoever conceals his transgression, and I would remind you that most of the time, we certainly can conceal it unconsciously, but most of the time that we're concealing, whether it's from God, others, that we are doing that out of pride. And so same principle applies. You will not prosper. God will oppose that. He will work against you in that way. But he who confesses and forsakes those sins will obtain mercy. Just like last week we, when we thought of this quote at the Lord's table, Kevin DeYoung, if we pretend our sin or our pride does not exist, it will haunt us all our lives. But if we own our sin, humbly acknowledging it and confessing it, no matter how many times, Jesus will take it from us. Do not pray for humility. Do not not pray for humility because your, fr- your pride is afraid of what it will cost you. See the clear warnings of God of what it will cost you to remain proud in any way. And then pray for humility because you see how precious it is to God. Father, thank you for your words in Proverbs that so blatantly, clearly tell us your heart about both our pride that remains in us yet and your love and call for us for humility. So God, humble us. Humble us. Wherever we each need it, And wherever we need it as a church, that we would reflect our humble Savior. And in that process, we pray, be used by you to draw people to the glories of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name, amen.